1: Happy days are here again, Hireside Side Chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, just trying to keep my head above water despite the rising tides of tyranny and rage. And aren't we all? The intensity of our times cannot be overstated, as the oily appendages of the nefarious few are squeezing much harder than usual these days, though the foundation was laid long ago. We watched the corporate consolidation and CIA infiltration of our news media occur without much of a fight, as they selectively showed us stories and images to elicit the response they want when they want. We stood in line at the Apple store, allowing ourselves to get sucked into a crack-like tech addiction, knowing in the back of our minds that this slippery slope would one day get too steep to stand on. We did not do enough when corporate giants took a free and open wiki-wiki wild-wild web and consolidated our attention to a few highly controlled platforms that are slowly pushing alternative thought outside the circle. We're sleep-deprived, nutrient-deprived, and improperly prepared to process this level of control and psychological warfare sanely. So we acquiesce, self-medicate, and sulk as the technocratic control grid advances more each day, And not even the king of Staten Island can save you now. But maybe it's not too late to go back and honestly assess how we got here. Maybe we can take a deeper look at the handful of people driving the big machine with their so-called philanthropic foundations and psychopathic philosophies and help enough of us to see through the spell that we can course correct. It would be no small task, but something today's returning guest James Corbett has been working on for quite some time. He's been warning us that Here Be Dragons for many years on his website, thecorbettreport.com, an independent, listener-supported alternative news platform operating on the principle of open-source intelligence that provides podcasts, interviews, articles, and videos about breaking news and important issues from 9-11 truth and false flag terror to the Big Brother police state, eugenics, geopolitics, the central banking fraud, and more. He's got his finger on the pulse, and I hope humanity still has one. The Japan-based journalist for justice and thorn in the side of the eye in the sky, James Corbett. Welcome back to The Higher Side, my good man. How the hell are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having
0: me on. That's one hell of an intro. I hope I can live (laughs) up to it.
1: I try, man. Yes, it is great to have you back. I keep getting myself in a sort of recurring podcasting pickle where I book interviews too far in advance for the rapidly changing times. And I finally said, well, dude, you better start putting people on the schedule who are equipped to talk about whatever it is that's happening when we go to record. And of course, that meant you. And of the work you've put out lately, the four-part documentary on Bill Gates is probably the best place to start. I really loved it. And it's something people got to see. I knew he was bad, but I kind of just wrote him off as someone trying to push himself into the capstone cabal or buy his way in, but wasn't really invited. Now we look around and he's the Rockefeller of our times, probably overdue to learn a bit more about the man, isn't it?
0: I think so. And I think you're exactly right. I too kind of, I wouldn't say wrote off Bill Gates, but for a very long time, I was certainly aware of a lot of the things that he was involved in. And I saw pieces of that story here and there about the GM mosquitoes or the investment in Monsanto or the gradual takeover of global health. But it was one of those stories that unfolds gradually over the course of a decade or two. And as a result of that, it kind of slips under the radar. And yeah, you see Gates connected here, you see Gates connected there. If you went through my work over the past several years, you would have seen Gates popping up here and there in various different interesting connections. But I never, and I'm sure many other people like yourself, never really sat down and put all those pieces together and saw what they added up to until, of course, the coronavirus freakout of the last few months when Bill Gates has dominated and monopolized, if you will, the screen time of many people. He is being interviewed everywhere as the go to expert on pandemic-spreading coronaviruses. Why? Is he some sort of medical doctor? Is he a researcher? Did he become some sort of epidemiologist while I wasn't looking? No, of course not. But he just happens to be a billionaire, a multi-billionaire, who is sloshing around billions upon billions upon billions of dollars in the global health space and funding a lot of the media outlets that are now having him on as a talking head guru to ask about this thing that he, quote-unquote, predicted. Five years ago in a famous TED talk that he gave and various things that he was doing at that time, warning about a pandemic and what would happen in the result of that and how we need to work on vaccine technology. So all of these things came together in the past few months in a way that started to be undeniable to me. Every single rock that I was turning over when I was researching this coronavirus story had some sort of Gates connection to it. So I thought we really needed some sort of compendium of that information. And that's why I created this documentary. It's called Who is Bill Gates? And it's available, as all my work, completely for free at corbettreport.com slash gates. It's got audio and video downloads and a complete hyperlinked transcript of absolutely everything that's in there. So you can go back to the sources of all of this information. And when you do, I think even the normiest of normies will be able to see that there has been a worrying amount of power consolidated in the hands of Bill Gates personally and in his family's foundation generally, that even The Lancet and other very, very mainstream sources were warning about as much as a decade ago. Hey, Bill Gates has a lot of power and influence, and maybe we need to be taking this seriously. How can this one man be directing the global public health agenda? Well, now we're seeing that come to fruition, and we're seeing what that means, and the fact that Bill Gates' pronouncements that we can't return to normal until basically the entire world gets a vaccine is being taken very seriously now, or at least we are being asked to take it seriously by the talking heads who are literally being paid by the Gates Foundation.
1: (laughs) Right, right. I definitely have faith that it won't all come to fruition, but he must be praying to some potent gods because he's manifesting his every will in 2020, it seems. And it was your older documentary, How Big Oil Conquered the World, which we talked about in a previous interview, that made me aware of the extent that John D. Rockefeller used the media to reinvent himself from a monopolist to a philanthropist. We used to see these old cartoons of him as an octopus or the head of a snake, and those sort of went away when he used his money to capture the media, to buy up the newspapers, And then he would put out these videos of himself as the man of dimes, giving dimes to children out of the kindness of his heart, only for the cameras, of course. And there's a real deep parallel with the way Bill Gates rebuilt his image now, if you really think back to the 80s and 90s, right?
0: Well, you're exactly right about that. In fact, uh, I know it's asking a bit much, considering, but uh, considering that this is already a two-hour documentary about Bill Gates, I know it it may be a bit much, but I really would hope that people who aren't familiar with my work on how and why Big Oil conquered the world would go back to that previous two-part documentary. It's another two and a half hours, but I think it really does lay the framework and the foundation for understanding this Gates story in its broader context and seeing there are definite historical parallels between what the Rockefellers did with their enormous mind-boggling fortune in the late 19th century, obviously having monopolized at least the U.S. section of the oil markets, and taking that wealth and leveraging it into power in all sorts of different areas, education and health and government and what have you. So, That was an incredibly important story, a template really for understanding how wealth can be converted into political capital, social capital that can then be spent to, of course, make the billionaire's image into a pristine image of a philanthropist who's handing out dimes and whatever, but also how that wealth can be used in specific political ways and Once you understand that, and once you really know a little bit about the Rockefellers and how they did that, then you can see how Gates was essentially following that template. I would say consciously or not, but it seems consciously because, for example, if you go and read Bill Gates Sr.'s memoir or book or whatever it was of about a decade ago where he was writing about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that he co-founded with his son and with his daughter-in-law, and he was writing about the work that the Rockefellers had done in a chapter of that book called Shoulders of Giants or something along those lines, where he was saying, essentially, everything that we do in this field of global health, we find the Rockefellers were there first. And we learned a lot of things from the Rockefellers. For example, how to take an issue and stick with it doggedly for decades, as the Rockefellers have done. So I think there was definitely a template being followed here, and you see that in every aspect of this. Again, not just the PR aspect, although I think that is one of the most obvious aspects of this. Back in the 90s, for people who can remember, Bill Gates was often portrayed as this evil monopolist who just wanted control of everything and was this cutthroat businessman. He did not have a very pristine public image. But fast forward to today, and of course, in Reddit and places like that, he's hailed as some billionaire philanthropist who's so generous and is saving the world. And that image has been carefully laid for the last several years. And I've watched that develop, that idea being developed and pushed, clearly pushed online. And this, I think, is what it's been culminating towards, the idea that he's going to be some sort of savior that we can all look to in a time of crisis like this. So I think you're exactly right to point out that Rockefeller parallel. That's something that I did kind of put into the documentary. But to really understand it, I think you probably need to see my How and Why Big Oil Conquered the World documentary.
1: Indeed. And I went looking for some answers on this because I was kind of surprised by the similarity with the two different templates. Of course, the philanthropy thing is there, but they even go into the same sectors. Education, you know, dumbing that down, uh, going into medicine. and just the way they do the media capture to reinvent their image. And I thought that was really weird. And I ended up being pretty shocked to learn that one of the original founders of the Rockefeller Foundation, well, there were three people, John D. Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller Jr., and their principal oil and gas business and philanthropic advisor, Frederick Taylor Gates. And I looked a little bit deeper, and there doesn't seem to be a family connection that I could find, but something tells me that that can't be a coincidence. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it certainly does seem uh, a, a bit amazing, doesn't it? Uh, and that was that was absolutely something that I've been looking into. I've been researching the Rockefellers for over a decade now, so I've certainly come across that name before, and that was obviously my first thought as well. That can't be Gates, Gates, can it? And uh, I've never been able to, to dig up a proof of any sort of uh, uh, connection, ancestral connection there. In fact, that was specifically... Uh, denied by Gates Sr. in that memoir that I was just uh, talking about that I do cite in my documentary. He specifically says there was, he was surprised when he was researching about the Rockefellers to find there was a Gates uh, that was advising them on their philanthropic endeavors, but he was no relation to us. So that's specifically denied. I've never found any proof that he is actually part of the Gates Gates family. But if anyone has any info on that, of course, I'm always (laughs) interested in hearing it.
1: Yes, it's very odd, very odd. Another thing I hadn't really totally worked out when it comes to his family and just how he built Microsoft and how he broke away from the pack in those early days, it's very telling when you really get into it. But these tech stories always seem to be full of theft and shady practices. Steve Jobs, marginalized Wozniak, Mark Zuckerberg did a similar thing when it comes to Facebook. But talk to us about how Bill Gates made his first millions, because We have this idea that they were slaving away in the garage, sleeping on couches, drinking Mountain Dew, trying to make this thing pop. But that's not really the case, is it?
0: Well, no, it is not. And there's a few different ways that we could address that question. One of which is, just as Steve Jobs had his Wozniak, who was the real brains that made Apple function, essentially, so too could you argue that Bill Gates... Had his partner, Paul Allen, who was definitely has not really received his due as one of the co founders of Microsoft and someone who is absolutely essential to contributing the code to the original Microsoft product, which was a version of basic programming language for, I believe, the Altair. That was where Microsoft cut its teeth and got its real start. And that was developed by Paul Allen. So, as the co founder of Microsoft, who eventually got muscled out essentially by Gates. And by Steve Bulmer, who Gates brought in as his Harvard buddy. there's some details on that in Paul Allen's memoirs that he wrote a few years before his death. But more to the point, yeah, the question of how Microsoft really took off and become Microsoft is a really interesting story, and some of this is common knowledge, at least in computer historian geek circles, but perhaps not amongst the general population, that Microsoft really got its big break when IBM. IBM, of all companies, came knocking on Bill Gates' door, which is particularly surprising, especially for people growing up today who might not realize IBM was computers, essentially, back in that time frame of the 1970s. I mean, when you thought of computer companies, there was nothing bigger than IBM. They were the monolith. They were absolutely the biggest company. But they were not at the cutting edge of the personal computer revolution that was taking place. And at least the story is IBM was scrambling and trying to play catch-up. And so when they finally decided to create their own personal computer, then they had to go and scramble and get all of the various different parts for the computer, essentially, and you know, all of the different things that would make it function. And one of the things that they did was they turned to Bill Gates of Microsoft in Albuquerque for his expertise on BASIC, I guess. And that's the story. And it's often left there that, well, IBM came knocking on the door and... They asked for a number of things. One of the things they were going to need was an operating system. Gates referred them to someone he knew who had an operating system, but when they went knocking on his door, he wasn't there. So they came back to Gates and basically he had to scramble to put something together. So Paul Allen knew this guy, Tim Patterson, at a local hardware store in Seattle who had made his own, literally he called it a quick and dirty operating system, QDOS which was just something he scrambled together basically for his customers at the hardware store. They bought it off of him and then rebranded it as MS-DOS, Microsoft DOS, and sold that to IBM. And that licensing deal that they got with IBM and how they were able to do that and how that became basically the standard operating system, not just for the IBM PC, which never really took off, but for all of the IBM clones, which became computers as we knew them, other than Apple essentially back in the 1980s during the big boom. All of that money was licensing and royalty money that was going back to Microsoft. So that's where they made their huge, big, multi-billion, ultimately, billion-dollar break. And why exactly? How did IBM come knocking on the door of Bill Gates in Albuquerque when, as one marketing executive later characterized it, Gates was living on pizza and Pepsi-Cola in Albuquerque, just sitting there and... IBM comes knocking on their door to talk about their super top secret project to work on their own personal computer. How did that happen? Well, as it turns out, Bill Gates' mother was sitting on the board of United Way with the IBM CEO, John Opel. And she was the one who convinced John to help out her son, who knew a thing or two about computers. At least this is the way Edward Andrus, who was a marketing exec for IBM at the time, he characterized it. He said... You know, when the CEO of the company tells you to go and help this guy in Albuquerque and he says, quote, 900 people get on the plane Monday morning and they all go down to try to help Bill Gates. Well, obviously he's speaking a bit metaphorically there, but I think the the sense was IBM mobilized behind this idea of helping Bill Gates specifically. So it was his family connections that really got him that contract, which really made Microsoft into what it is, even today, I suppose. The fact that it's still a company that everyone recognizes, is really from that incident, and that stems from his mother's connection.
1: Yeah, and I also read that Bill's mother's name, of course, before she was married, was Mary Maxwell, and her father was James W. Maxwell, founder of the National Citibank in Seattle and director of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. You do cover this pretty close relationship that Bill Gates had with Jeffrey Epstein, but do you think Ghislaine Maxwell or her father Robert Maxwell could be related to Mary Maxwell?
0: It's a possibility. I can't say yes or no because I haven't investigated that family tree enough to be able to say that. I would say just off the top of my head it feels unlikely because of course <laughs> the Ghislaine Maxwell, Maxwell and Robert Maxwell that was I mean they're in England but they're from Russia but they have ties with Israel intelligence. That was kind of half a world away. It could be I mean, it's the same name. It could be the same family, but I would need to do some more research on that.
1: Fair. But I guess tell people a little bit about the connection between Bill Gates and Jeffrey Epstein to maybe make it a stronger speculative case, because it's not arbitrary. There were millions of dollars exchanged between the two, it seems.
0: Yes, well one of the first pieces of information that came out on this was the flight logs that showed that Gates had flown on Epstein's plane, not to the pedophile island, but he had flown, I believe from Teterboro to Florida, and interestingly enough, when this was discovered and it was in black and white in the flight logs, Bill Gates flew on Epstein's plane. He said, I think through a press agent, he said that I didn't even know it was his plane. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I guess I just hop on private jets all the time and who knows whose plane it is. I, I Yeah. Hmm. Unbelievable. huh? But at the time, they certainly were denying that there was any sort of deeper connection between Gates and Epstein. I mean, it was just they knew each other because they were in the same circles and they were both interested in philanthropy. Right. Because that's what Epstein was known for. But there was a lot of denial going on, which was then contradicted by, of all institutions, the New York Times which talked about the fact that there were, in fact, multiple meetings between Gates and Epstein that had taken place. They even had one photograph from, I believe, a 2013 meeting. I'm not sure. I'll have to double check that. But they have a photograph from one of the meetings where Gates is standing there with Epstein. They definitely had multiple meetings. And again, officially, according to Gates and his spokespeople, it was, oh, they were discussing philanthropic endeavors that Epstein wanted to be part of. But Gates had basically dismissed it. Nothing came of it, so nothing to see there. Except then that was contradicted by emails that surfaced in the controversy that was surrounding the MIT Media Lab, which people might know the director of that MIT Media Lab, Joy Ito, had to resign in disgrace after it was revealed that he had been taking donations from Jeffrey Epstein after the point where Epstein had been convicted of soliciting underage prostitute was what he was ultimately convicted of. But really, I mean, everything that came out in the trial was that he was running a child sex trafficking ring. So after the point where that was established, Ito had been accepting Epstein's donations, but agreeing to make them anonymous so that they could basically whitewash it because MIT didn't want any connection, or at least on the record connection with that, One of the things that came out during that was an email showing that Joy Ito had informed his staff of a $2 million donation to the lab in 2014 that he said in that email, quote, was a gift from Bill Gates directed by Jeffrey Epstein. Now, there's still no explanation that's been offered for what that means or how that transpires how jeffrey epstein is directing bill gates to give money to the mit media lab how did that relation what does that mean i mean there's definitely some deep and interesting connections there and in fact people who have been following Whitney Webb and her work first at Mint Press News, now she's at The Last American Vagabond, she has uncovered information that shows even as far back as the 1990s, before Epstein was even, anyone even really knew who Epstein was, there was some sort of business relationship at that time between Epstein and Gates. So people can look into her work for more information about that. That's a fascinating and tantalizing trail, which I'm sure will reveal a lot of information. But really, I mean, that does raise the questions of what these men really do have in common. What are they interested in? And obviously, I mean, when you're talking about Jeffrey Epstein, it certainly raises certain possibilities. And Gates did say in an email that has since come out that he wrote to his colleagues in 2011, he did say, quote, his lifestyle, Epstein's lifestyle, is very different and kind of intriguing, although it would not work for me, (laughs) whatever that means. So I'm not exactly sure. But beyond the sexual interests that they may or may not have shared, one thing that they certainly did share was an interest in eugenics. And this is a fascinating and bizarre connection that came out in the Epstein case in a kind of incredible way last year, where it started to come out that Epstein had this whole plan. He was going to seed the human race with his DNA. He wanted to impregnate 20 women at a time at his ranch in New Mexico. And he was going around telling all of his high-powered, high scientific friends and high-powered businessman friends about this plan again i think it was the new york times that was reporting on this anyway they were reporting about this that this was his plan and then you start to see some of the connections between the people that epstein was working with and the people he was talking about this plan to and gates one particularly interesting example is a man named boris nikolich who is a harvard trained immunologist who served, at least for a time, as the chief scientific advisor to both Microsoft and to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and who was named as a co-executor of Epstein's estate after Epstein didn't kill himself. And that... Immediately, Nikolic came out and said, well, I was never informed of this. I I had no idea he made me some sort of co-executor. I'm not going to do that. I have no, I I don't know why this guy would do this. But it is interesting to note that in that photo that the New York Times dug up of that, I think, 2013 meeting between Gates and Epstein, standing right next to Gates and two people away from Epstein is Boris Nikolic. So clearly there is a connection there. And then I do look at some of the other types of people who come into both the Epstein and Gates orbit For example, people like George Church, a Harvard geneticist who had been publicly criticized for having a connection to Epstein and maintaining contact with him, again, long after he had been convicted and long after the information was coming out about his activities, he was maintaining a relationship, meeting with Epstein on a regular annual basis and accepting funds from him. So there was a bit of scandal about that. But Church also happened to be the scientific advisor to something called Editas Medicine, which was a startup seeking to use a genome editing tool known as CRISPR-Cas9. People might have heard about this and the fact that it doesn't quite do what what they say it was going to do. But he was basically working on this idea to eliminate diseases by just deleting the parts of the genetic code that make people sick. And through this Editas Medicine, well, he managed to raise, or that he was a scientific advisor to, Editas Medicine managed to raise $120 million from a group of investors. That group of investors was put together by Dr. Boris Nikolich, And naturally, of course, who was part of that group of investors? Yes, it was Bill Gates. So you start to see these types of connections. And I'm sure there are many more. That was the one that I highlighted in the documentary. But there are these strange parallels that come up between the people that Epstein was talking to, and the people Gates were talking to, because they were moving in very interestingly similar circles. Again, part of the Epstein story that people might not know, because obviously people talk about the child sex trafficking, but they don't talk about all of the philanthropic and scientific endeavors that Epstein was interested in that all happened to swirl around immunology, genome editing, these types of cutting edge ideas that Epstein was interested in specifically for essentially his eugenical purposes. And so why is Bill Gates swimming in the same waters with the same people? That's that's a fascinating part of the story that didn't get a lot of attention at the time.
1: Yeah, man. Great summary. It is a strange world. They obviously ran in the same circles. His wife has the name of Epstein's right-hand girl. There's a Gates founding member, the only one not named Rockefeller, and the Rockefeller Foundation. I don't know. It's all too much for me, man. But. The Gates family context and background was really insightful. I mentioned earlier that I'd always thought he was outside the circle trying to buy his way in or something. But it seems like one way or another, he was there all along. And we've both been talking about Bill Gates plans and investments for years, both in vaccines and in digitizing schooling. And I used to think, well, that's all Over there. I know what I need to know about vaccines, and it's too lofty of a goal to think school can really be digitized. And then all of a sudden, 2020, the pandemic has made this inescapable. Now we have talk of mandatory vaccines and decrees about how schooling will permanently change to be based on your home computer. It's like we're in a full court press, but this isn't a happy accident for old Bill. As the film notes, the Gates Foundation had money in nearly every aspect of global public health leading up to this, and obviously still does. And when it comes to current events specifically, there were two groups responsible for the panic that justified the lockdowns. Number one, the Imperial College COVID-19 research team and their infection model, which we should note Bill Gates gave $79 million to them this year alone, and in 2017 gave them $279 million for, quote, Collecting data and creating models. Well, surprise, surprise. And then number two, the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation, based in Gates' home state of Washington, which I'm sure is no coincidence, but these two organizations, it seems like maybe they had a financial incentive to create the problem for Bill Gates'
0: solution, no? It certainly does appear that way, doesn't it? And in fact, those are just two examples of this, but you'd be hard-pressed to find any of the major institutions that are involved in this pandemic in any sense that don't have any connection to Gates. I mean, whatever you're looking at, the Johns Hopkins Center or, or the World Economic Forum, which has become a bizarrely important player in all of this that helped co-host Event 201, planning out essentially on spreading novel coronavirus right before that actually supposedly really happened and all of that craziness. Again, every single time you turn, there is direct connection of some sort with the Gates Foundation. And in the case of Imperial College and the IHME, as you point out, a direct monetary connection with Gates literally providing grants. Now, again, I mean, you look at the Imperial College grant, the $79 million that was given just a couple of months ago, but that was, at least according to the grant, database on gatesfoundation.org that was to develop a new tool for malaria control and elimination in sub-Saharan Africa. So nothing whatsoever to do with jiggering models, right? I mean, there's no way that the Imperial College London COVID-19 response team would in any way be influenced by the fact that Imperial College had received $79 million for quote-unquote malaria control in sub-Saharan Africa at the exact same time as they're coming out with their model, which then is used as the model the prediction the scary prediction that both the us and uk and other governments around the world used as the reason why we needed to shut down the entire global economy again there's never going to be that signed on the bottom line here we'll give you this money if you fudge the model this way or that but that's i mean one can draw inferences and that's a obvious inference to make again that's actually just one grant that was in march of 2020 over the years it's added up into the hundreds of millions of dollars that the gates foundation has given to the imperial college but in one grant payment in march of this year it was 79 million dollars so again there are direct uh, ties here direct conflicts of interest one would say or at any rate direct reasons why we should be skeptical of this network that is formed essentially from gates money the gates foundation is like the spider at the center of the web and their grant foundations are the different threads of that web that tie all of these organizations together. So when you see all of these different organizations essentially on the same page, screaming that we need to shut down the world economy, at the very least, I think, would be prudent to ask, well, what does this Gates money have to do with this? And is the Gates Foundation setting the agenda here? And again, you don't have to go out on a limb about that. As I noted, even The Lancet was saying back in 2009 that essentially, you know, the entire field of global public health is being increasingly bought out by the Gates Foundation, meaning that all of this is being driven by the interests and passions of the Gates family. Maybe that's not a good way to structure the global health industry as it, I mean, industry might be the right word for it, because of course, it's so intimately tied into the big pharma and specifically the vaccine manufacturers, which again, we could go into that and how literally Gates has a economic tie to the big pharma vaccine manufacturers through something like Gavi, which was co-founded by the Gates Foundation. It's called Gavi the Vaccine Alliance, and it is an organization that specifically sets out to create quote-unquote healthy markets for vaccines and other immunization products. And so over the course of the past decade, when the Gates Foundation has so generously committed over $10 billion in funds to various vaccination projects around the world, well they are doing so specifically in an organization with direct ties to big pharma vaccine manufacturers to create healthy markets for those manufacturers how is this particular i mean, i don't think this is simply an economic thing i don't think this is just a money making operation i think there's much deeper much more important reasons that this is being done but that is the simplest most straightforward most documentable part of all of this and the type of thing that you would think in any other context A real press, a real watchdog press would bring to the fore. Hey, there are direct conflicts of interest here. The vaccine manufacturers are the ones tied through the Gates Foundation into this agenda for creating markets for their vaccines. And here's the Gates Foundation funding all of this essentially PR for the vaccine industry and going around saying everyone's going to have to be vaccinated. There's a direct conflict of interest here. It's easy to spot. But of course, that isn't happening. And why not? Because, oh, the Gates Foundation is also sponsoring the global health coverage of all of these different organizations like ABC News, like NPR, like PBS, like all of these different things. It really is just this incredibly tangled web that no one seems interested in unraveling, at least in the mainstream media space. And I think, obviously, your listeners know why that is. But I think it is important to point this out. This is not just... Well, duh, obviously, because there are many people out there who do not understand at least this level of the deception. And that's specifically why I ordered the documentary the way that I did, with the first part being about the Gates Foundation takeover of global health and their incredible money basically buying out the global health industry, is because that is the type of information, A, it's completely documentable, be completely undeniable, and see, even the normiest of normies should be able to at least see the obvious economic conflicts of interest that are at play here before they get exposed to the deeper stuff about eugenics and the end goal of all of this.
1: Right, right. And I just love that documentary. It's so telling to see the press coverage that he's gotten back to back to back. Clearly, it's very one-sided and pro and a little bit gross. And its, uh, it's cringiness and the way it clearly seems forced. And obviously, when you know how much money he's putting into the creation of his image in the media, it's just clear as day what's going on there. And you mentioned the reasons this is all happening, the deeper reasons. And I want to get into that. What drives Bill Gates? I mean, you said he was a eugenicist, and I get that. Is it enough to say that he's a eugenicist? Because It just seems like he's driven by something else. I mean, if you have this kind of money and you hate people, then don't engage with them all day, every day. You don't have to go visit children's hospitals and stand there and cut the ribbons and do uncomfortable interviews for 60 minutes. Put your mind to something else or retire. But this is like a spiritual mission or something. Is he some part of a strange occult order that we don't know about? Because this level of commitment is just insane. It's illogical.
0: It is. It is absolutely baffling um, to people like yourself or myself who can't really imagine the type of dedication that is involved here. And I only go based on what I can prove and what I know and what I can document. And so there are, I'm sure, many things that are out there that I can't document and won't be able to. I could speculate, but that's not really what I do at The Corporate Report. So i Ultimately, I don't know if he's part of some sort of a cult order or what have you, but I do share your observation there, not just about Gates, but looking at someone like like a David Rockefeller, who, of course, passed away a few years ago, but lived to over 100, wasn't it? I mm-hmm. believe he, he cracked the 100 mark, the century mark, but well into his 90s, still exceptionally not just funding these types of different endeavors, not just sort of vaguely committed to it in a monetary sense, but actively involved in these types of organizations and institutions and out there trying to press and make sure that his various agendas come to fruition, that is a remarkable level of commitment to someone who, again, was born into the lap of luxury, never for a moment in his entire life, ever, for one second, had to worry about a job or a career or making money i mean that that's absolutely did not factor into the equation of someone like a david rockefeller but yet a remarkably driven person who was hands on dedicated to making sure that this great work comes to fruition clearly there is something very very deep seated here and again i only go based on what i can document and prove and i point again and again to eugenics because it's the kind of it's the ideology and i think it really is just a fig leaf it's just something that is a justification for what these people are doing that gives it some sort of pseudo scientific gloss but essentially we are superior to you we deserve to rule over you we deserve to choose who breeds who doesn't what happens what doesn't in the future we are the ones we are the rulers and ultimately i think it's no different than Back in the day, back when there was a divine right of kings, we are fit to rule over you because God himself has appointed our family to rule over you. It's essentially the same thing. And it's based on, I think, about as much reality, which is to say none. I mean, it's just something picked out of thin air as a justification. But it is that sort of identifiable thread. And again, ties directly back into this story with, for example, the Rockefeller family having been absolutely driven the eugenics agenda forward certainly documentably in this first half of the 20th century they were there at every step funding american eugenics and german eugenics and everywhere around the globe bringing that to fruition so i think that's the kind of thing you can point to and you can see okay definitely they're involved here and this is something that motivates them at least in terms of being the fig leaf they can put over it now is there some sort of deeper religious spiritual thing that they're trying to bring in whatever, open the dimensions for spiritual. entities. Again, yeah. I don't know. I'm sure there are many things in this universe that go well beyond my understanding or even imagination, but I'm just pointing at what I can see. And the eugenic story is one that I can see and I can point to and I can name names and I can prove documents. And here's this payment that went here and here's what they're doing here. And that's, again, I think it's a way that people can grasp the seeming paradox. Well, here's this vastly, incredibly, unimaginably wealthy person, the person that we are told, of course, fraudulently, but anyway, we're told is the second most, the richest person on the planet right now, Bill Gates, who, by the way, as I point out repeatedly in the documentary and will continue to point out, despite the fact he's so generous and he's giving away all his wealth, his net worth has doubled in the past decade. Riddle me that. How does his net worth double if he's being so generous and he's giving away everything? <laughs> hmm, I wonder how that works. But how does this person who's so wealthy and so obviously powerful and able to bring uh, agendas to fruition, and he has stated time and again that population and too many people, it's one of his big concerns and it's something that's really motivated him. In fact in that very revealing interview that he did back in 2002 or 2003 where he admitted that his father was the head of planned parenthood he was talking to bill moyers in a conversation that's mostly been scrubbed from the internet you can find the transcript you can find that tiny little clip an edited clip of him talking about that but you can't find the full interview anymore but he did talk about that and how he's motivated by issues related to population why is this? What What is that motivation? And I think it's in eugenics that we start to tie those pieces together. It's because essentially the control over who breeds and who doesn't is the real control over the future of humanity. And ultimately, this ties into the transhumanist trends and the technocratic trends. Again, I think people who have seen Why Big Oil Conquered the World will have a better understanding. That hour and a half documentary, Why Big Oil Conquered the World, really goes through the 19th, early 20th century version of eugenics, which was specifically about sterilizing the poor and the, the mentally feeble and whatever other terms they slapped on people they didn't like. The middle part of the 20th century and late part of the 20th century was more about population, population control and environmentalism. And as that moves into the 21st century, it's more about technocratic control and transhumanism. And we're going to basically move to this wonderful world where we're all going to merge with machines. Well, maybe not all of us, but the ones who are rich and wealthy and deserve to merge with machines are going to merge with the machines and live forever. And that will be the future of humanity. I mean, this is truly for the future of the human species. So there's really nothing that could be more important than this. And I think that's at least part of the answer to why these people are so hands on committed to making sure their vision comes to reality.
1: Right. Fair enough. And you make a lot of great points. Of course, yeah, it's not charity when your foundation goes from 50 billion to 100 billion in a decade. We can't really call that charity. Uh, in the conventional sense, and
0: right, can- and not his foundation, but his personal net worth. Oh, his geez. foundation has, I think, forty forty-eight billion or something. But Bill Gates' personal net worth is a hundred billion.
1: Jesus, man, well, <laughs> that's crazy. And of course, we can leave the wild speculation to me. I love how you just stick to the facts. But when I think about the stuff you laid out there, I wonder if they're even human. But It is an amazing documentary that you have on Bill Gates, contains a lot of good info, but I wanted to switch gears a little bit while we're still in the first hour and ask you about what's going on in Seattle and Minneapolis. Protesters in Seattle have sectioned off an autonomous zone and police are not allowed to enter. Minneapolis's city council tried to dismantle the police department until it read the charter that said it's not allowed to. There have been shootings in both places in just the last day or two from when we're recording. And now I'm hearing about this new idea in police departments that's spreading about calling in sick together. The blue flu, as they're saying. I think it's actually in its third day in Atlanta. But the cops are overworked right now. They're not respected. And they feel like if you want to fend for yourselves, have at it. And I understand that sentiment. But... I'm just curious to get your thoughts on all this, because as much as I respect your work, if you remember, our biggest disagreement in the past has been about how realistic an anarchist system would be. I would demilitarize the police and radically restructure their job description, but I'd probably stop short of sending them all home. I would just like to know how you're processing all this and what you would like to see happen or what you expect this to be about.
0: Well, there's so much to talk about there. I can't really speak to the specific domestic issues of internal American politics. As a Canadian in Japan, it's not my place and not my concern per se. Um, But I do think that there is something obviously about this idea of... Actually, interestingly enough, not disband the police, not abolish the police, defund the police, which puts it in a very specific context, which to my mind brings in the specter of federal funding for policing. And of course, that already exists to a large extent through the kind of carrots and sticks that are used at the federal level through the Department of Homeland Security, for example, in order to militarize the police. We'll give you all these fancy goo gods and gadgets, but we're footing the bill, so we get to choose this and that, and we get more of a foot in the door into your policing, which, of course, should theoretically be at the local level according to the way the U.S. system developed, but that's increasingly being federalized. In fact, I mean, again, let's keep it in historical context. The Federal Bureau of Investigation is actually only a century old. There was no federal police force of any sort before that point. So the majority of American history has not had any sort of federal policing, but that's obviously something that's changed in the public consciousness over the past century. And they're really putting the pedal to the metal. So I think that is one aspect of this that's interesting. But more generally, I think this points to a very interesting inflection point that we're at with regards to the nature of policing itself. What policing even is about, what it means in the 21st century. And I will cite Vin Armani on this. He was on a podcast that I was listening to a few weeks ago where he put it, I think, quite well. He said that essentially the old idea of the beat cop on the street making his patrol and and enforcing the law, is a 19th century concept. It's like talking about the horse and buggy. It's outdated. We don't need that concept of policing, at least not to the extent that we once did, as things start to get tied into the technocratic control grid, which is more and more about observing and documenting things from a distance. Everything that you do, everywhere that you go, is being tracked and surveilled and databased through the little slave devices that we all carry around in our pockets that are tracking everything we do. And, oh, by the way, now we've got contact tracing. So now we not only can do this and not only are doing this, but now we can tell you that we're doing this and no one's going to put up a fight because you're not one of these crazy COVID deniers, are you? We need this in order to fight the scourge of disease. So I think increasingly policing itself will be thought of in that sense of something that is happening through data collection, essentially, at a distance. And we've seen the sort of the beginnings of this, the thin edge of the wedge through Alexa and things like this being called on in trial. Well, Alexa has a recording of whatever was happening in the house at that time because, oh yeah, by the way, it's listening to you at all times. You don't need a special wake word. It is recording and listening to everything you say. And Amazon has a copy of that. So why don't we subpoena them? And that has been used in trials. Various smart devices have been essentially subpoenaed for their data in murder trials and what have you, we're starting to see this. It's more now about the data that's being collected and how this can be done remotely. And then on top of that, we're also seeing not just the drones, which are now being openly used for policing and being introduced to the public. Hey, look, we found people lounging in this park when they weren't supposed to be because of this drone footage that we got. So drones, yay, they're going to help save the day. But now also, I mean, the people have probably by this point seen the robotic police that are policing in, I believe it was Singapore or other places where they were having lockdowns. And there's robotic things that are rolling around, basically telling people by loudspeaker, you know, you can't go here, you're not allowed in entry into this area. It is literally becoming this nightmare science fiction scenario. Although, obviously, we're still a few years away from the fully robot police force that will be the enforcers of the future. But that's clearly where this is heading, and that's where this conversation is going to be steered. Because we don't need the police like we used to. And this is actually the really worrying thing, not just in terms of policing and what that means for that, but really society generally. Because it's always been my intention that at the point where the oligarchs figure... We can flip that switch and we can automate 99% of what these, you know, human cattle used to do for us. They will do so. And at that point, the human cattle become completely dispensable. And as Bigniew Brzezinski went around saying about a decade or about 12 years ago, he went on a series of lectures and writing op-eds saying, you know, it used to be easier to control a million people than to kill a million people. Now it's actually easier to kill a million people than to control a million people. And don't you think there's some sort of calculus that's going on there? So again, this is the worrying stuff because at some point when that decision is made and humanity generally is dispensable and replaceable, or at least 99% of it, that's when the real, we go from the soft kill to the hard kill and the real bioweapons are released and real carnage. And that's definitely not what I'm looking forward to. And I, I see this policing aspect of it as just one sort of thin edge of that very big wedge.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you make a lot of good points. I think we're seeing a problem reaction solution situation, and we're still just in the problem phase. Maybe when this goes out, we'll be a little more clear on the solution they plan to roll out for it. But I would love to see an anarchist Occupy 2.0 encampment be successful, but I really doubt the machine would allow a police-free area to be peaceful, they will use it as an opportunity to justify their existence if they have to. And I just am so curious if like, the fact that Seattle is a hub for companies like Microsoft, Amazon, and Starbucks, is that related to why this is the place this colony is trying to set up shop? And I am concerned. You say defund the police. It's great to focus on that word. We're talking about the money. And I think about the fact that maybe the seed money for all this stuff is coming from the same old billionaires. And if they can create enough lawlessness, they can potentially privatize and centralize the police. And if they could privatize law enforcement, guess who would never be looked at by law enforcement? The people who own them. So I don't know. I think that there's possibly something there. If you can justify your existence. Like all these military contractors, they used to do all these operations internationally. Now I fear that a lot of U.S. contractors are doing operations domestically, like it's the plot of RoboCop to justify their further militarization. And it's kind of scary. It's, it's kind of scary the way I'm hearing about this blue flu and everything. But you know, I guess it's not a good thing to get too worked up when you're only in the first few chapters of a long story.
0: Hmm. Unfortunately, I think you're right about that. And this ties into so many of the different aspects of the quote unquote new normal that we're being told has emerged this year. One of which is that I also find it fascinating that just a month or two ago, the prospect of martial law in the form of medical martial law was hovering over the United States and it's still there. It's just that that particular agenda has been put on the back burner for now, but it will be coming back with the second wave narrative that they're about to launch but medical martial law, which would have been welcomed and embraced with open arms by certainly the left of the phony left-right paradigm there in the United States and many people around the world who, of course, are the science believers. And if you deny there's anything going on with COVID, then you are a science disbeliever. You're one of those crazy Nazis. So there was a lot of the public that would have been, I think, all on board for some form of medical martial law. In fact, there is a de facto medical martial law where you have these unelected health officials that are making decisions about when and how people can go to work, for example, or things like this. I mean, it's already quite scary. But then, at the very least, there was some protest and pushback on that side, that idea of medical martial law by people on the right side of the phony left-right paradigm. What they can be motivated to get on board with martial law and embrace it with open arms if there's all this protesting and rioting and looting and lawlessness, well... And we're going to need the army on the streets to take care of that. So, and of course, again, that prospect has been floated in recent weeks. So it's just fascinating to me how both sides of this in a pincher movement are coming together. And one way or another, some form of martial law will be making itself felt in people's lives much more clearly throughout the year, I'm sure. But maybe that will be be the issue that brings both sides of the left-right phony paradigm together. Well, we can all agree that it's great to have the military on the streets just for different reasons.
1: All right. God, as crazy as the pandemic has been and then these protests right after, I still feel like we're in for an even wilder ride going forward. I'm hearing about more directed energy weapons out here in California being used to create more fires to justify climate change legislation. Again, bringing that back. I'm hearing about engineered blackouts. I'm hearing about false flag attacks that target the grid specifically that could be blamed on China. I don't know. You got to just be aware. But are any of these things that you think Americans really need to consider? Or if we're trying to stay a few steps ahead, what should we be keeping in mind that people aren't talking enough about?
0: That's the eternal question. And I suppose there are any number of answers. But with regards to the issues that you raise there, I will point people to a podcast that I did a number of years ago, probably, I think, 2013, on the EMP false flag. Essentially, the idea that there could be a, as we've been told, if they detonate some sort of nuke, you know, a mile over Los Angeles, they can basically knock out the power grid on the West Coast. And That type of idea has always been floated with in connection to North Korea. You know, they don't need fancy missile technology to be able to deliver a nuke all the way. They just, you know, have some sort of submarine or other way of delivering it over to the West Coast and setting it off in the atmosphere. And that'll create widespread carnage. So that idea has been around for a while. And I think that is a possible false flag that is in the tool of the the would-be oligarchs. So... I mean, should people be prepared for that? Generally speaking, yeah, I guess so. But again, there are so many different things that could be pulled, including as, unfortunately, this the times we're living through brings up the specter of, as I said earlier, going from soft kill to hard kill with the release of real, deadly bioweapons that really are in the labs, that they really can release and really do incredible damage. And imagine if it's the second wave, or the third wave, or the fourth wave, or whatever, of coronavirus, once people stop trusting these health experts who are telling them to stay indoors and and batten down the hatches, well, at some point, they release the real bioweapon that really starts killing people en masse, and hey, look, all you crazy people who questioned what we were saying, either you died or you caused people to die, so now we're going to completely control everything. Again, there's so many different ways that this can go that, unfortunately, one can almost get caught up in trying to think like the would-be controllers themselves, and seeing, well, well, they could do this, and they could do this. But (laughs) doesn't that distract us from the real issues of how we get off of their system altogether, which I think should be the goal?
1: Yes, true. I am definitely guilty of that. And I've had that thought, too, that if you cry wolf enough times, and then you do release something, and you wipe out the people who are playing fast and loose with the rules... Now the only people you have left are the real sheep, the ones who bought it hook, line, and sinker all the way through, kept the masks on, stayed home, and that's the population they want.
0: Or you give people the vaccine, of course, but you make it so that some people can opt out. All the people who opt out, you release whatever bioweapon that the vaccine actually protects people from so that everyone who gets wiped out are the people who refused to, to take the vaccine. Everyone who's left are the people who went and lined up for it. So now you've got this completely gullible population completely in your back pocket.
1: hmm Yeah, you are right. There are just so many ways it could go. And obviously, we are both strongly against globalization and centralization, but I am curious how you feel that that plays into the protests in their present form in America. Because having some figurehead to negotiate with, to make some sort of demands and then say, all right, everyone, we made a lot of progress today. Let's get back to our lives and we're going to keep holding their feet to the fire in the future. It just seems like a better approach to this sort of situation. And I hear many different opinions, but what do you think? Outside of the manipulation of these protests, there are a lot of good people taking part in them just because they're sick of everything being so unfair and they're out of a job right now. But when it comes to these genuine protesters and activists out there, do you consider the leaderless movement to be an asset or a liability?
0: I would definitely put it on the asset side of the ledger because leader movements, there are literal tactical manuals about how to undermine leaders or to co-opt leaders or to assassinate and get rid of leaders. And... Unfortunately, the again, the would-be societal controllers have no end of experience in exactly how to do that, and we can think of any number of examples of movements that have grown up and have been derailed in one way or another by taking out the head. That's exactly why. Again, everything that they model is, I think, modeling to us exactly the direction we want to go against. So when they put in the context of everyone has to try to focus on and elect this leader or, or get this person to... Will, Take your agency away from you and your responsibility away from you and they'll do it and then they'll tell you when it's time to go back and continue with the system and when to cooperate or when to get angry. That is abrogating your personal responsibility and also your personal power and putting it in the hands of someone else. My ideal society, and of course we're not there, but my ideal society is one where I don't have to... Care what some other person wants to negotiate with some other person about some other thing or not, or what kind of terms they want to come to. That's great. You do that. That's great. But I want my relations to be bilateral. I negotiate for me who I am and what I do with my, again, my time, my energy, my money, my attention. And that is the bottom line for me. And I don't abrogate that. I don't give that power over to anybody else because that is me. That is who I am. So I am all about leaderless resistance. I never, ever, ever, ever wanted or ever put it out there that I'm the leader of some movement and I'm going to tell people how it is or anything along those lines. And I I don't follow any movements. I'm not following any sort of leader myself. And that's because that speaks to who I am and what I am attempting to do with this. And that also speaks to why I, if you want to go and vote and participate in the elections and put your identity in some sort of political figure, well, again, that's your choice. I'm not going to stop you. But I'm not, and no one's going to convince me that that somehow is the way that we can take power away from centralized controllers is by putting in the hands of other centralized controllers who will be kinder, gentler slave masters.
1: (laughs) I figured you'd say something like that. To me, it seems like a damned if we do, damned if we don't thing, because you make a great point about blackmail and co-opting and obviously just murdering uh, leaders of a movement. But with so many agent provocateurs and Soros style meddling, it seems way easier to manipulate the perception of a crowd without a leader, the perception from the outside of that crowd. And there's nobody to rally around and say, hey, we come in peace. The looters are not us. Like messaging is really important when it comes to strategy, especially when you have the major media companies in between the protesters and the people and controlling that message there's no like mlk junior to step up and give an inspiring speech and say you know this is what we stand for this is what we don't um i don't know i see both sides it just seems like a uh, lose lose honestly
0: and there's also no us government agent essentially or plot to blow mlk's head off because there is no mlk so <laughs> you know what i'm saying Again, that's a perfect example of exactly how leaders can and are undermined one way or another. They're either compromised or they're taken out, as the FBI, of course, did try to blackmail MLK with recording his dalliances and attempting to say either you kill yourself or release them. And then when he didn't kill himself, well, they killed him for him. And I document that in a documentary I did a couple of years ago called the truth at last. And people can find that on my site, mlk. But again, that's just a perfect example of exactly how leaders are taken out and why investing your identity in a leader. Well, what happens when that leader gets his head blown off?
1: <laughs> yes, be our own leaders. But it seems like the system has a response for pretty much every situation. But James, this has been as enjoyable as ever. I wish the things that we were talking about were still hypothetical in terms of these agendas and a little less in our face, but we are lucky to have you either way. Remind them about all the great stuff you got going on and where they can get it.
0: Well, the one-stop shop really is CorbettReport.com. That's my corner of the internet, and that hopefully, well, when that disappears, then we'll be in serious trouble. But at least for the time being, that's where you can find all of my work completely 100% for free, freely available to the public. I do have a newsletter, a subscriber newsletter, but even that you can find the free version I always link to. So all my work is there, corbettreport.com. And I never ask people to become members or support my work unless and until you've really delved into the archives and you find it valuable and you appreciate it, you want more, then you can become a member of the site. It grants you access to that newsletter, but as I say, that's for mostly for free anyway. And then also to comment on the site and things like that. So CorbettReport.com, as I say, I also post to Minds and Library and BitChute and an ever evolving cast of alternative platforms, as well as, of course, YouTube, because that's where most of my audiences come from over the past years. But I try to I try to wean them off of those types of platforms. <laughs> but you can find me out there generally. Although it is getting harder, I will say. Again, just to bring it back to that censorship issue, it is getting harder to find corporate report material through certainly through Google or the controlled YouTube search.
1: Yes, it is. And I also think it's important for us to look out for each other in that regard. Let me know if they ever do try to freeze you out because the worst part of that is the feeling of isolation. And if you have a network of other hosts who are willing to keep people informed, then it's not as panic-inducing. But, man... Many layers in the conspiracy cake. Thanks for breaking it all down for us. Keep doing what you do and do take care.
0: I appreciate you having me on. Thanks.
1: Well, there he is, people. The man, the myth, the legend, James Corbett. Always working on something new and interesting. I really admire his body of work. He definitely keeps it at a high level. And kind of like Ross Ben, I thought a deep dive into Bill Gates himself might be a good way to add context to our times without really hounding on current events outright in the same way. But the more we learn about Bill Gates and the more we see under the hood of how his operation runs, the better we can see how the influence and financing of a few can affect the many. I know I went a little hard on the name namesyncs, but it is pretty odd, right? The only non-Rockefeller founder of the Rockefeller Foundation shares the Gates name with one of the very, very, very few people to successfully duplicate and even surpass that Philanthropy Foundation template? And James detailed some of Gates' dealings with Epstein, whose right-hand woman is Ghislaine Maxwell, her father, Robert Maxwell, is the shady dude who's involved with the Promise software scandal, and Gates' mom, Mary Maxwell, is rubbing elbows with IBM and getting them to rally behind her amateur son. I don't know. I'm not just playing six degrees of separation here, because it's not just names. It's software scandals, philanthropic foundations, wiggling their way into medicine, education, and media. It's a lot. And I'm more inclined to think that the Maxwell operation was a multi-generational Israeli operation and Epstein was just the front man for it. That's why he's dead and Ghislaine is out there doing whatever the hell she wants. It starts to make me think that the path of what they were doing comes from her or her father. And the tentacles that are wrapped around them. But what do I know? I think it's pretty obvious, at a minimum, that we don't think Epstein was the head of that snake. It's all quite weird. And as for Seattle and police departments, I definitely hear what James is saying. Something like the FBI isn't that old. Sometimes we have concepts in our head and we think, well, we can't change these things. They've always been a part of us and we need them. But I do worry that this retooling of American police departments or having them stand down to anarchist takeovers is a slippery slope. I just look at this and I'm not sure what the game is there exactly, but it does make me a bit nervous. I don't know that we can radically restructure police departments, greatly alter their role in society, retrain them for de-escalation tactics, and defund them at the same time. To retool and retrain is probably going to cost something. It just makes me think back to an old interview with Adam Kokesh, prominent libertarian, some would say anarchist. And here's a guy who was in the military, has seen combat, is very comfortable with guns, and is kind of a confrontational personality type. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he seems like a guy, if I'm remembering our interview correctly, that would be pro-getting-rid-of-police-and-defending-his-own-property-and-rights-by-patrolling-his-porch-with-an-assault-rifle. I'm not that guy. But I do like creative ideas for changing the job description of police officers, having two days of their work week be volunteering and community outreach beyond just law enforcement, I kind of like the idea of treating them more like a fire department. We'll call you when there's a problem. We don't need you out patrolling the streets. The fire department doesn't go out there looking for stuff. And no one's complaining about that. I like the idea of having them carry a type of malpractice insurance. If people die in your interactions, then you need to be priced out of being a police officer. Cops who do a good job would keep more of their paycheck because their insurance costs would be low. And eventually, those would be the majority of police officers who have a long career in policing. When someone sues a police department for excessive force, that should come out of the general pension fund, not our tax dollars. Incentivize departments to weed out bad officers rather than protect them. I've also heard this concept of an 811 emergency number, where we could use the exact same emergency response system we have now but an 811 call means that you're opting for a non police emergency response. How many accidents happen because 911 was called and you have a problem, but you don't have the option to say, hey, we just need an ambulance or some sort of help that doesn't require anyone armed? Probably would have less dogs or people with mental issues shot because of erratic behavior. I like these ideas because they're efficient. They move things in the right direction, but they don't require rebuilding from a blank slate. And is that really the best idea when a third of the country is out of work, when rents aren't getting paid, etc., etc.? It seems like you have stretched people very thin, made them sort of desperate, and now you want chaos. This is just my assessment, but when you look at a situation like the CHOP or the CHAZ, whatever you want to call it, It does not have the same feel to me as a 60s summer of love. It's not all peace, happiness, and tie-dye. Maybe even that's romanticized. Hey, I wasn't there. In fact, I'm in neither place. But I do think it's good that people are focused on diversity. But diversity means more than skin color and genetics. What about a diversity of ideas, philosophies, senses of humor? Seems like everything is peaceful in The Chop, as long as you agree 100% with everything they stand for. And that's not freedom to me. Because if you don't, I've seen a lot of videos where they get quite aggressive. But I'm sorry, I'm not really trying to soapbox here. I'm really just taking a sit-back-and-watch approach to a lot of things right now, if I'm being honest. But hey, it's the wrap-up of a show, and I gotta say something, right? It's just getting harder to stay out of it all, or to have a middle-of-the-road opinion on anything. I want to go back to a time where I get to be the most extreme voice in the room. What happened to that? But anyway, if you liked the first hour, we always got a second hour of these here interviews for PLUS members. Today we talked about climate change legislation and the prospect of rolling that op back in. Japan's cancelled air defense system. Internet censorship and monothink, cryptocurrency, biodata collection and the big agenda, the bailout package and corruption in the financial changes recently, and boycotts and boycotts. All important pieces of the puzzle and potential solutions to our troubles. I hope you consider supporting the show because I built a system where you get a lot more out of it when you do. Also, we are making a change when it comes to the joint sessions. It's obviously fun to have audience interaction and to hear some great stories and theories and experiences from you guys. I like that so many people are willing to smoke weed on camera and call me from their work shift. That's always pretty fun. But big picture, this structure just doesn't seem to be doing it. After two years, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of people... Watch them later? I think the main reason is because you're used to following THC as a podcast. If these things are videos that don't pop up in your RSS feed, it's too much trouble to go and watch them on the website. And I get that. Also, you really do need a call screener or a soundboard operator when doing stuff like this, or too much of it is slowed down by the technical process and trying to wear both hats. I could also stop paying for Zoom, and I can stop relying on YouTube, because if YouTube were to pull our channel, that is one aspect that I would lose entirely. Other feedback I've heard is that people have something to say, but they're too nervous to talk on the fly. People can't make it because of life, or kids, or work, etc. Some people get mad at me that the same callers get through, and their call isn't answered. And I think we can fix a lot of these problems by replacing the joint sessions with a Q&A, audience comments, host commentary, sort of sixth podcast just for plus members that would largely be cobbled together by making a forum thread. That way people can tell the same stories or talk about their same theories, but in a more thought out written form. We can have Q&A questions for me, and I can sort of build a show out of what you guys put there. We've done Q&A shows like this in the past. We're just going to broaden it out to more than just Q&As. Because I think what people really want is just another podcast rather than a separate thing. And so July 20th at 7 p.m. Pacific will be the last joint session. I wanted to give you a chance to get in on it one more time. And then in August, I will start in with this sixth show thing. I don't know if we should still call it the joint session show or not because it doesn't apply in the exact same way, but I do still like it. So we'll see. But that's happening and I think many of us will prefer it. And that said, I'm going to close this thing out. Thanks for listening. Big thanks to James for his time and his amazing catalog of work. Stay safe out there. Keep your head on straight and I'll catch you next time. Your move, Gates Foundation facilitators, phony philanthropists, and agents of the biotechnocracy. Your fucking move.
2: You know the plan has always been to hack your brain. just trying to drive you insane. And they'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes. You think I'm answering the phone while well, I ain't. You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well you're not You should tape the mail slot And baby if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become a pat down and a swap don't you see what's going on well now you know you're better keeping on your own cause you can see the masters lie too much oh baby you can only trust yourself and if you think the system's out of touch it is and you can only trust yourself I hope you know the elite aren't your friends They'll suck out everything from you in the end And if for some reason you think I might be wrong I wonder where you got that opinion from You gotta keep the curtains strong Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well you're not, you should tape the mail slot and baby if i seem withdrawn let me say it's cause i just don't wanna go and get whacked maybe you should know that the trauma affects you like it does everyone it's just the game plan it's what the world's become they want a pat down and a swap don't you see what's going on well now you can see the masters lie too much oh baby you can only trust yourself and if you think the system's out of touch it is and you can only trust yourself are small or maybe they aren't registering at all now they know you're naive and vulnerable you won't believe all of the stunts that they'll pull cause you can see the masters lie too much oh baby you can only trust yourself and if you think The system's out of touch It is and you can only trust yourself Cause you can see the masters lie too much Oh baby, you can only trust yourself And if you think the system's out of touch It is and you can only trust yourself